So I am someone who is good with numbers. I did well in math as a kid, but I'm bad with spatial relations. I know how to measure out and calculate the area of a room. I can compute the volume of a cylinder or a cube or a cone, but I can't look at a room and tell you how many square feet it is. I can't look at something in the distance and tell you how many blocks away it is. My co-parent, Anne, is unlike me in this respect. She is particularly gifted in spatial relations and thinks multidimensionally. She can look at what's left in the mason jar of kasha, go to the bulk section at Oliver's and return with exactly the number of grains needed to fill the jar up evenly to the rim. I suspect more people are like me, hard to see in three dimensions, based on numbers on paper, whether those numbers are data, measurements, or statistics. We might understand the numbers on the paper perfectly, but still not fully grasp the truth of what they represent. This is the tricky business evident in this week's Torah portion, Kitisa, in which God commands a census of the Israelites this census is done not by counting people directly, but by counting coins. Each Israelite somehow comes up with a silver half shekel. The coins are collected and tallied, and that sum is equivalent to the number of people. There are really two outcomes of this census. First of all, a windfall of money for the administration and a numerical figure, a sum, a number. No more information than that. Unlike the American census upon which so many of us family history buffs rely and even dote, there are no names collected, no relationships, addresses, ages, or occupations. Each Israelite who is counted dissolves into a piece of data, a costly silver piece of data at that. So why this counting of coins instead of just counting people. Our sages say it was done this way because it is forbidden to count Jews. In Talmud, the rabbis review a verse in Hosea that goes like this. The number of the people of Israel shall be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. On its face, this verse is a typical prophecy about how numerous we would one day become. But the rabbi saw in the phrase, which cannot be measured or counted, not a boast, but a prohibition on measuring and counting the people of Israel. And they point for support to other passages where we see Israelites being counted by their sheep or the priests holding out a finger and letting their fingers only being counted. By interpreting Hosea this way, the rabbis of the Talmud launch a long-standing prohibition on counting Jews. This prohibition forced some creativity because sometimes you just need to count people. I've been in synagogues and observant communities where a minion was needed. Instead of doing a head count, one, two, three, four, they used a 10-word verse from Psalms. Hosea et amecha uvarech et nachalatecha Ure'em v'nas'em ad ha'olam. 
Deliver and bless your people. Tend and sustain them forever. You would recite this verse looking word by word at each person in the room successively. If you reached the end of the verse, you had your minion and could start praying. When I was in my 20s, I got to spend a lot of time with my then boyfriend's grandmother. Grandma Margaret, a multilingual Slovakian transplant to St. Louis, certainly could do numbers. She and her husband had successfully operated a grocery in Pittsburgh and then one in St. Louis. But when she was counting out, say, who was coming over for dinner, she would tick off in her mind the roster of guests saying, not one, not two, not three. This same practice showed up at Ner Shalom's Yiddish Tish this week. We were reading from Sholem Aleichem's novel, Motel in America. The protagonist, a nine-year-old immigrant boy, is being asked by officials at Ellis Island how many friends his family had in the United States. Motel begins naming and describing each. Yoina der Becker ayida kasin eres nitens. Yona the baker, an angry man. He is not one. Sein Weib rive die Bäckerin ayidne mit a retonde is nitzve. His wife, Riva, the baker, a woman with a nice coat, is not two. When Grandma Margaret would count people that way, she had her own reasons, seemingly unrelated to Talmudic prohibitions. For her, counting your loved ones, your family, your friends, was a delicate matter that could arouse the evil eye, tempting it to take someone away and undo your boastful count. I suspect that her view of why we don't count people is at least as old as Talmud, if not older, because the feel of it, of the fear of imminent loss, is right there in this week's Torah portion itself, in the census instructions. The coin that each Israelite hands over is not just a marker for counting. It is explicitly a gift to God to ward off plague. This is a method of counting by proxy that also attempts to avoid calamity. Perhaps it's a recognition of our human frailty that no sooner do we count ourselves, no sooner do we notice ourselves in the world, than we also notice our extreme vulnerability and ephemerality in this life. And thus, the inherent bravery implied in the phrase, stand up and be counted. One participant at Yiddish Tish reading the not one, not two piece of the Sholem Aleichem story, said that she knew of this custom but understood it to be a practice born of the idea that we are not numbers. No human is a number. This feels like a rather modern read of the custom, but still an important insight. We are humans, and how often do we get treated as numbers? A number is a nearly indecent reduction of the human experience. Reduction to a number is, for instance, how the American public can know that over a half million Americans have died of COVID in a year and still feel disconnected from the immensity of this loss. During the early years of the AIDS crisis, when the nation was ignoring the mounting death toll from the disease, San Francisco activist Cleve Jones came up with the idea of a memorial in the form of a life-size quilt made up 
of large fabric panels. Each panel, sewn by a loved one or a volunteer, would give the name of someone who had died of AIDS, and the decoration would communicate something of who they were. The dimensions of the panel, three by six, were roughly the size of a body or a grave. When the quilt was first displayed in Washington, D.C. in October of 1987, and I was there that day, there were at that time only 1,920 panels. And yet it filled an area on the Capitol Mall larger than a football field. The Names Project quilt remained one of the most visible symbols of the devastation of those years. It did so by undoing the counting, by restoring human dimensions to what otherwise were inconceivable and thus ignorable statistics. The AIDS quilt gently and firmly insisted, we are not one, not two. Maybe Torah understands this tension. To count, no matter how high you count, is to reduce. Nonetheless, sometimes we must count. Grandma Margaret needed to know how many plates, forks, and servings. But the number eight was no substitute for the eight living, laughing people gathered around the table. I invite you right now to look down next to where it says participants on your Zoom window. Notice that it says 71. And be impressed for just a moment at how many people are here. 74 Zoom windows, many containing more than one person. And now draw your focus to the top of your Zoom window and switch to gallery view. Take a moment to do that. And once you've done that, look at the faces and think, not 71. And if you're not certain of your math, count for yourselves, not one, not two, not three.